Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate welcomes Dave Thompson back to discuss his book, Truth, Rod Stewart, Ron Wood, and the Jeff Beck Group, the birth of heavy music, and how a group that was barely a band perfected the hard rock album in spite of themselves. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today, Dave Thompson returns to discuss his book, Truth, Rod Stewart, Ron Wood, and the Jeff Beck Group. Dave, welcome back. Hi, thanks for asking me back. And this is one that I'm sort of embarrassed to admit, but I had a vicious 18-month obsession with the Jeff Beck Group about seven years ago. And uh, this is... (laughs) <laughs> well, my wife and kids thought there was, and uh, um, because I could not stop playing this stuff. I, I had spent probably 20, 25 years trying to get what the big deal was with Jeff Beck. You know, Growing up on Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, my older brothers would always say, oh, you should check out the Jeff Beck group, and I would try, and it wasn't scratching that same itch. And eventually, I had a mixtape where I was trying to – or an iPod mix – back in the iPod days where I was trying to get Rod Stewart and the Faces, another group, because I'd always heard, oh, if you like the Sex Pistols, you got to check out the Faces, and <laughs> never quite got it. But then, you know, once I put all the Rod Stewart solo albums from the air and the Faces and, and you know, got to really liking it, but then the Jeff Beck group stuff started really standing out because I'd thrown that in there as well. And then I just got obsessed. And so now I see what the big deal is. Dave, you want to tell people what is the big deal with the Jeff Beck Group? What did they do and what did they almost do that makes them so historically important? I think the first thing to say about the Jeff Beck Group is there were several different lineups. So you have to be very careful. Um, when I first wanted to hear them, I liked the Yardbirds as a kid. And at some point, I thought, oh, Jeff Beck's solo albums. And the first one I, I got was Rough and Ready, which came out in 71, 72. And it was horrible. And then, you know, I think I got Beckola, and I didn't particularly like that. And then I found a copy of Truth very cheap. And it was like, okay, well, he does shapes of things, so there's going to be one good song on it. <laughs> and absolutely adored it it made me sort of check out you know those other Beck group albums still didn't like them still don't like them um then jeff Beck went on to his jazz kick and that was completely beyond me i don't think i really liked jeff Beck again until the albums in the early 2000s for that one moment of truth, which was Beck, Rod Stewart, Ronnie Wood, that album, it, it's funny, you know, you said you liked Zeppelin, but you didn't like the Beck group. I think without the Beck group album, Zeppelin would have sounded very different. At a minimum. Yeah, yeah at a minimum. A lot of people would have said, it was one of those albums, you always hear about the album that, you know, nobody liked when it came out, but 
you know, it influenced everybody, like the Stooges or the Velvet Underground. And truth is almost like that. The people who liked it loved it, which tended to be musicians, I think. And the public was, oh, it doesn't sound like Hi-Ho Silver Lining, which was his big hit the previous year, um, and just rejected it. In Britain, but in the States, it was a big album immediately, and they had a big impact at the Fillmore East when they made their American debut oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, but when you, yeah, I mean, it charted in Britain as well, I think, but it's like when you actually look at its legacy, you know, its legacy was very, very, it was a lot smaller than it should have been. People should have been raving about that first Beck Group album or still raving about it when the first Zeppelin album came out. Yeah, and, the, and, and Zeppelin and Zeppelin was slagged for being an imitator of the Jeff Beck group at the time, which is kind of hard <laughs> to hear growing up on Led Zeppelin and hearing those big rhythm guitars and the big Black Sabbath rhythm guitars. That's the thing that Jeff Beck group doesn't really have. But no. Truth in particular perfected the heavy metal album format. I mean, it's it's got your your blues rockers. It's got some classically influenced heavy rockers. It's got the classical acoustic guitar break. It's got yep. what would you what you would call now power ballads. It's got a virtuosic lead singer, which is something he'd never had. Yep. You know that you didn't see with the Kinks or the Yardbirds or the Stones, or even the Who, and this combination of the virtuoso lead guitar player and virtuoso lead singer. That's the formula. That's a, a big part of the ingredients of heavy metal. Another thing to me, preparing for this show and going back to Jetpack after not really listening to it for a couple of years, at first I was like, oh, that's not really metal because it does have the classical influence. And then it just hit me off over the head. Well, Vex Bolero is this massive it's a ripoff of Ravel. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a classic, you know, that is as classically influenced as it can get. It's also the heaviest track on the album. And, and when and, you think of, think of who played uh, second guitar on that track, it was Jimmy Page. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and Keith and, Moon on drums. Yeah. And Keith Moon on drums. And, and let's go ahead and hear um, a little snippet of Vex Bolero. That was, as you requested, the loud bit from Bex Bolero with Keith Moon screaming as he starts the 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 drum rave up. Um, and and let's let's go back a little bit and tell the story of Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. How long had they known each other, and what was their relationship like? They were really good friends. They'd known each other since they were teenagers. Um, grew up in the same area hung out together all the time, both joined, like, well, Beck joined little local groups, Paige moved into sessions. But when Eric Clapton left the Yardbirds, um, they immediately went to Paige and said, will you join? He said, no, but my mate might. So um, Yardbirds management went down to see Beck playing with a group called the Tridents and basically kidnapped him. <laughs> <laughs> 
And when um, when Paul Samuel Smith, the uh, bass player, left the Yardbirds, um, they needed a new bassist, and Beck was like, "Let's ask Jimmy." So Jimmy Page came in as bass player for for a and brief it, period, and then yeah, and then goes to lead guitar, and and you sort of glided over. And I, just for those who don't know the history of the Yardbirds, with Jeff Beck they had a string of epic hit singles and his yeah. lead guitar playing was absolutely, uh, yeah, he was definitely at the top of the pack from like six, mid 65 through most all of 66 until Hendrix emerges. Jeff Beck is at the forefront of the British guitar rock revolution. And I think what's interesting is Beck was one of the few guitarists who didn't change their style dramatically when Hendrix appeared. Because you look at people like Pete Townsend and Eric Clapton, and I think, I think Page to an extent, they all became more flamboyant, more uh, sort of just, yeah, more just more flamboyant. And, you know, Eric Clapton grew his embarrassing uh, frizzy hair. Um, <laughs> Beck just carried on, you know, I did a book with Jim McCarty, who was the Yardbirds drummer, a few years ago. And, I mean, he makes the point that Beck always looked like he turned up at a gig or a rehearsal or a recording session looking like he'd spent the day under one of his cars, like messing around with grease pumps. <laughs> and he probably he, had. He, he probably had. Oh, years later, I, um, I was at Melody Maker in England, and Jeff Beck had a new album out, and I sort of, can I do an interview? And they were like, yeah, you know, go for it. Went to Beck's people, only if Jeff can have the cover. Back to the editor, can he have the cover? Yes. Um, back to them, yep, he's got the cover. Um, Jeff doesn't want to be on the cover. It has to be a picture of one of his cars. <laughs> End of interview. And I asked Beck about it, like, I must have been 20 years later. I said, what was that all about? Yeah, I went through a phase. <laughs> <laughs> and and he went through a lot of phases, and that kind of perversity is a hallmark of his career. Like with the Yardbirds, yeah. he was he was the new boy, although he was the star at the same time. But they, you know, Keith Ralph and Paul Samuel Smith and Jim McCarty really had a lock on that band. They picked the material. George Ogumelski, their manager producer, was very involved, and he would give Beck plenty of space to shine on yeah. a solo. Um, but but Beck acted out by being sick and missing tons of tour dates. And by the time Jimmy Page comes in and segues to the lead guitar, and for a brief moment they have a dual lead guitar um, attack, and and the two of them have mapped out what essentially what Dwayne Allman and Dickie Betts are going to do in the Allman Brothers five, six years later with harmony, dual guitar parts and dueling solos and all kinds of things. But they never get around to doing it because Beck just opts out of the tour. They get booked on one of these terrible Dick Clark all-star tours of America. And, and Beck just decides to spend the time in Hollywood with his girlfriend instead. And, you know, the band cans him. And that's when um, each of the Yardbirds under new management, Simon Napier Bell, 
is recording solo stuff. Keith Ralph had done a solo single, and Jeff Beck gets this opportunity. He puts together this super group. He's got himself, Jeff, Jimmy Page. He's got John Paul Jones on bass and Keith Moon from The Who on drums and Nicky Hopkins, the the ultimate session pianist of the day, who's you know heard on all the Who and Kink tracks, um, puts together this group that they're jokingly called call in Led Zeppelin. That's the Keith Moon joke. Yeah, because it's going to go over like a Led Zeppelin. And um, does this one song, doesn't do anything with it at the time. Um, they talk about, you know, Keith Moon's threatening to quit The Who, even talks about getting John Entwistle to come with him. And, and they're reaching out to singers. They try to get Steve Marriott of The Small Faces. Don Arden, the manager, sends back word, you know, if, if you make a move like that, you'll lose all your fingers. And you know, they talk about getting Terry Reeve, but nothing, nothing comes of it. And then Jeff Beck goes to the, the Yardbirds management contract is sold from Napier Bell, then to Mickey Most and Peter Grant, who are very big figures in this story. I've already done a show on Peter Grant and how he managed Led Zeppelin to superstardom. And Mickey Most was his partner. And I've done shows on Mickey Most's role with the animals and, and House of the Rising Sun, but he's also had tons of hits with Herman's Hermits um, and the Nashville Teens. And one of the top pop producers in England at the time. And he asked Jeff Beck, do you want to be a pop star? Jeff Beck says yes and signs a contract. Tell us about the contract that he cut with Mickey Most. Uh, um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's so bad that Peter Grant keeps it on his wall for years as a keepsake. Yeah. Oh, I thought you wanted me to tell you about the contracts. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, well, just the general gist of the contract is Mickey Mouse has all the power and all the decision-making. Yeah, although once they got into the studio after the singles, um, Mickey sort of absented himself and just took a production credit. Um, but the, I mean, the early singles, Ho Ho, Silver Lining, Tally Man, I mean, they were great records. Yeah, Beck learned to hate them very, very quickly. But they, I mean, they were fabulous records. And Mickey Moster's producer was going through a golden, he had several golden eras, but that was really his first one in the mid, mid to late 60s. And what he did with Beck, I mean, he just brought out everything you'd want from an ex-Yardbird. An ex-Yardbird who had been the guitarist but now is singing and, and a, a pretty weak voice. And let's go ahead and hear Tally Man. This is written by Graham Goldman, sung by Jeff Beck, yeah. with some backing vocals by Rod Stewart. Graham Goldman's Tally Man is performed by Jeff Beck, and not the Jeff Beck group, but just Jeff Beck as a solo artist. And it's a follow-up to Ho Silver Lining, which was a top 15 hit in England, but was one of those songs that has stuck around. And it's been re-released multiple times. Jeff Beck has described it as having a toilet seat around your neck uh, for the rest of your life. And, and <laughs> really gets to the core of the ambivalence of Jeff Beck. He, he signs this deal. He says, I want to be a pop star. 
and you know the the price of being a pop star is letting Mickey Mouse pick your material and and how it's going to be recorded. You know, Beck had already met met up with Rod Stewart and had this vision for the Jeff Beck group. But instead of following that vision, he's he's executing Mickey Most's plan to be a pop star, which works out okay for the first year. High Ho Silver Lining's a big hit. Tally Man, less so. Uh, the third single, uh, instrumental cover of Love is Blue, the French music anthem, total flop. And, and by that yeah. point, Beck's really, really straining at the bridle. And they spend a year – I mean, in England, nobody really cares about Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck. Um in 1967 when they put the group together and hit the road. No. And I mean, back in a way, he's, he had great ideas without looking at the execute, you know, how to execute them. His first vision for the Jeff Beck group, it was him and Rod. Then Jet, um, Jet Harris from the shadows who, you know, had been sort of, a huge star, but sort of drifted away and had a reputation for being very, very moody. And um, Viv Prince from The Pretty Things, who was basically sacked because he was completely out of control. Um, and Beck thought that this would be a good group. <laughs> 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 and, you know, it, he looked, you know, when I asked him that, he looked back and, you know, what was I thinking? You know, Viv Prince. But you know they tried. He had he wanted a Keith Moon drummer, and Viv Prince was the closest. And if it had worked, it would have been it would have been sensational. But you know, in the end, they got Ronnie Wood and a revolving door of drummers. Um, yeah. And they still managed to make a great album. And if you listen to any of the live tapes, the quality is pretty horrible, but it shines through just what a great sounding band it was. And Beck, Beck was playing guitar you know, like he'd never had the chance in the Yardbirds. You know, he really let rip because he was in charge this time, didn't have the, you know, the others saying, oh, no. Um, Rod, I think, was... Well, Rod was terrified for the first gig and spent most of it hiding behind the speakers. But yeah, he became he became the sort of the Rod Stewart that we loved in the early faces, just very ebullient, um, just leaping around and singing his heart out. And you can't go go wrong with Ronnie Wood on bass. No, definitely not. Just a ferocious bass player. And and both Stewart and Wood had been very active on the scene, although neither had had, had scored a big hit. Stewart. Run through Stewart's CV before Jeff Beck. Um, Stewart made a few solo singles that didn't really go anywhere. He was rumored to have played a harmonica on My Boy Lollipop by Millie, but it turned out it was someone else from the band that he just left who did it. Um, then he was in a group called Steam Packet with uh, Long John Baldry, who is another of those giants of the British blues scene. Uh, Brian Auger of Oblivion Express renown and Julie Driscoll. And it was a great band, but it had sort of too many leaders. They used to divide the, they wanted to recreate a, like a stacks review and just have a whole bunch of singers and they'd all take a few numbers each and just be happy and pass the microphone around. And it didn't work like that because everybody wanted to do their song 
first. And the group really fell apart and never... I mean, the recordings of them tend to be live and radio shows. And you can, again, you can see the potential, but they never really hit it. And then after that, he was in a band with, um, oh, the guy who went on to form... Kevin Peter Green. Barden. Yep. No, uh, Peter Barton's and Peter Green and, uh, was it Beryl Marsden? Um, yes, she was around, called, at least. Yeah, called Shotgun Express, which, again, you know, good idea for a band, but went nowhere. And then he was rescued by uh, by Jeff. And and one of the things that had sabotaged both Steam Packet and Shotgun Express was Rod Stewart had his own management deal, separate from yeah. both of those groups. And that carried over into the Jeff Beck group and continues to be a problem. And it would continue into the faces and be a big problem for everybody except Rod, um, yes. who, who it turned out to <laughs> 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 Turned out very well, well for Rod. Rod always wanted to be a solo superstar, I think. And bands were just his way of getting his name out there. Uh, it was like Mark Boland. You know, he always he always had a vision of himself solo, but he had to join John's children in order to get a degree of recognition. And then once that was coming, he left and formed Tyrannosaurus Rex. It seemed to be a lead singer disease or you know, lead person disease in the 60s. Yeah, and in the 60s, people were much more proprietary about who was in a band. It was it was seen as a lifetime commitment. Everybody had to live up to that Beatles or Stones ideal of this is our posse, this is our crew, you know, ride yeah. or die. It wasn't like today when people pop in and out of multiple projects at one time and everybody's kind of loosey-goosey. It was very territorial about what who was in what group. And you know, like in in the book, you tell the story of how once the Jeff Beck group finally gets to America in '68 and and hits big, makes a big splash, big write-ups in the New York Times, you know, blows the Grateful Dead away at the Fillmore East in their first gig, and and Jeff and Rod Stewart is then signed to a solo deal on Mercury, and at first you're like, how does this happen? It turns out he was never under contract with the Jeff Beck group. <laughs> it's just he was just a sideman on Jeff Beck's contract. Well, yeah, because Mickey Most didn't, you know, all he wanted was the man to make lots of high ho silver linings. You know, the, the group, that's why he didn't do much on the album. It's the group was, you know, so Jeff wants to go and make a horrible rock record. You know, I'll sit back and find another French Muzak song for him to cover. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he never picked up, he never signed Rod, etc. Which I'm sure Mickey kicked himself for years after that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he missed out on a lot of money. Yeah, you know. And, Although, and... go ahead. It was it was funny once uh, Rod had broken big. Um, you did get these little compilations coming out that Mickey Mouse had licensed, and it being a, the Jeff Beck group featuring Rod Stewart in big letters. Um, and. <laughs> It would be like their versions of you know the Elvis songs from the second album, 
Um, it was all it was always like oh shock album. It's like please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, although I actually like that stuff quite a bit. But um, it, it it's interesting. You talk about how Jeff Beck had the vision and, and he knew what he wanted to do. And 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 you know Peter Grant laughs about it, laughed about it to his dying day. That you know Je- all Jeff Beck talked about was I want to make an album and I want to tour the states. I want to make an album and I want to tour the states. And all through '67, Mickey Mouse is just laughing him off and putting him off. But Jeff Beck was exactly right. He knew exactly where the market was going. And it's, you know, you talk about alternate histories in the book and, and you talk about what if he had gone to Mike Vernon, who's the guy who produced John Mayles Blues Breakers album, that that's that's the album that broke Eric Clapton to a wider audience. And, you know, what if he had been on DECA and he could have been at the forefront of the British blues revival and it would have, you know, perfect opening to go in there with somebody who would take him seriously um, as a blues artist. And there was a market for that. It wasn't the pop market, but eventually, and not very long, you know, it would completely overwhelm the pop market by 68, you know, Peter Green Fleetwood Mac is, is selling massive units, but in 67, nobody, you know, Mickey Mouse couldn't see that coming. And Jeff Beck, it's just fascinating, you know, reading this book and other books about Jeff Beck. It's like the guy had the talent and he had the vision, but when it came time to execute, it was always, oh, I'm sick. I think I'll skip another day at the session. Or, I'm going <laughs> to cancel this live show. You know, it's it's um, amazing. Bad, bad business decisions as well. Oh, yeah. Lots, lots of them. Um, I mean, I've often I've often thought about that particular alternate history of you know really sort of getting into the British blues boom. Thing is, would he have turned into just you know the next or the first ten years after Savoy Brown, any of those Chicken Shack, any of those bands that were on Blue Horizon and Decca, and really, you look back on them now and they're just locked in their little blues box. You know, it's a long time since I met a ten years after fan. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I'm, sure that, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are many, but he would have got locked into the blues box. Whereas, in a way, his sort of intransigence allowed him the career he had. It's like it's almost like he waits over. Oh, I think I'll form a band with the guys from Vanilla Fudge, and then you know, a couple of years later, I think I'll make a jazz album with Jan Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, time for the time for the Gene Vincent tribute record, boys, and he just does what he wants. Yeah, and in the long and run, it's worked out. He never, quite... he never got so huge that there would be you know, a million management consultants around him saying, "Oh no, you can't do that. Think of the kids." Um, but he was never obscure enough that people didn't care what he was going to do. He found that nice. Just that, that nice happy medium between the two was never huge, was never obscure, and could just do what he wanted. And Absolutely. I think his album, his albums this century really proved that. It's like, yeah, who did you make this record for? Oh, I just thought it might sound good. And the <laughs> last one, Loudspeaker, I think was one of his best records ever. Yeah, he's definitely having a renaissance. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors and come back and and talk about the peak and the fall of the Jeff Beck, the original Jeff Beck group. We've talked about Rod Stewart and we've talked about Jeff Beck, but the third member, key member of the original Jeff Beck group we haven't really talked about, and that's Ronnie Wood, who's of course in the Rolling Stones and was the lead guitarist for the Faces. But at the time, 
he's just a kid who had been in one band, the Birds with an I, the British Birds, who had put out a couple singles, who'd been stalwarts of the touring scene in 65, 66, and had fallen apart. And unlike Jeff Beck, Wood is a very canny careerist. He's, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, that is high praise. As soon as the birds kind of fell apart, he and Kim Gardner start showing up at Jeff Beck's apartment. And Jeff's in this post-Yard Birds depression. And Woody really props him up and is, you know, his sparkling charismatic self and kind of manages to weasel his way into Jeff Beck's project. Once it's clear (laughs) (laughs) that Jet, Jet Harris is, basically post-musical at this point. And, and I mean, the idea of getting Jet Harris and Viv Prince, you know, Viv Prince is going to go on to be kicked out of the Hells Angels for being too rowdy. <laughs> and, and he's already been kicked out of the pretty things for the same offense. And the idea of getting the two most notorious reprobates of the British club scene and putting them in a band together, you know, immediate disaster. And, and, and Ronnie Wood is there willing to switch instruments, although there's a few iterations where they try having him on second guitar and get another bass player and his friend Kim Gardner from the birds and the creation. Um, but Wood, Wood's willing to do it. And, and he and Rod Stewart have this second class citizenship. I mean, it's interesting. The sales pitch Jeff Beck gave Rod Stewart in particular was, I want to be in a band with mates. I want to be in a band of friends with the same musical vision. And it seems at first, like with Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood, that He's doing that. But very quickly, because of his contract and the business arrangement and just Beck's thoughtlessness, you know, these two guys are having to go to the Mickey Mouse office every week and sit there for hours waiting for their five pounds, you know, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> food money every week. And Jeff Beck's, you know, staying in finer hotels and riding in limos and living a completely different existence. And it creates this big split in the group. Yeah, um, but I mean, again, that that sort of happens with a lot of groups. You hear the same thing about you know Bowie's group, you know, six years later. Um, Man decides who is the star and treats them as the star. And you know, if you are the star, you're not really going. Well, I want to hang out with my mates, or do I want this big stretch limo with (laughs) its own bar and a television? (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and the thing that was uncomfortable about that is as the band presented itself, particularly in America, I mean, Rod Stewart is becoming Rod Stewart. He's the front man. He's the big, tall, blonde uh, singer with the incredible range and, and power. And, you know, there's you, you tell the story of, of after their first show uh, the in New York. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, <Tell Jeff>. <laughs> Um, they're backstage. Someone from the record label walks in, walks up to Rod, and says, "Hello, Jeff." <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad guitar player you've got over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the, I mean, the band speak with truth and with the the American tour and the British dates around it. Have you heard the? Um, I'm talking to you and the audience. The BBC sessions that they did in '67, of course, have, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is the sound of the band live in the studio, and her sessions actually blow away the album in places. You know, it's a shame 
they seem to have released them as well. Yeah, or at least some of those songs. Like you know, Rod Stewart's going to get around to uh, his cover of David Ruffin's um, I-, I think I'll, I'm Losing You. Uh, and it's, it's great when Rod does it solo, but there's a ferocity to it when he does it with the Jeff Beck group that is, is – it's a shame they didn't record it. There's a whole slew of, of songs that they did frequently in concert, Oh Pretty Woman, um, some Curtis Mayfield numbers, just a bunch of stuff that fortunately was recorded live, although this, like you said, the sound is pretty lacking. But the ferocity of this lineup – and that's the thing. They never rehearsed. Um, they were very, pretty slow to do new material, but they were very spontaneous. Jeff Beck is an incredible improviser, and you know Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood could hang with him. And, and yeah, and they had a revolving door of drummers. But it, when it's Ansley Dunbar and Mickey Waller and Tony Newman, that's a pretty good revolving door of drummers. Uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, going back to the BBC sessions, um, something that's turned up. In my world, it's just turned up on YouTube, is a song called This Morning, which was allegedly from one of the sessions. Um, but it's not listed in any book or you know, any known record, and it's never turned up on bootleg. And it's amazing. <laughs> well, This Morning, I recommend that everybody go onto YouTube after this and listen to it. Well, I might be able to pull it. Let me make sure that we can find it on YouTube right now, and I'll pull that up for our next song snip. But I was going to do Rock My Plimsoll because that's the song where Stuart and Beck do a call and response thing between the lead vocals and the yeah. lead guitar that's going to go on to become a staple of Led Zeppelin's stage act with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. And, and it's just you know one of many ideas i mean the whole approach of the virtuoso lead singer the three-piece rock group is something that jimmy page who's got the same management um as jeff beck and they're close friends from childhood it's really hard to deny that he got some of these ideas from being front row center and seeing the jeff beck group with rod stewart and let's not forget who was also around the Beck group at that time and in the studio when they were recording, which was John Paul Jones. Yes, playing organ on You Shook Me. On You Shook Me, yes, which um, Jimmy Page seems to have thought was a good song to cover as well, completely uh, coincidentally. <laughs> yes, and then you know you, you tell the story in the book of how they're in a, they meet up in a, on the road and they're in a hotel room and Jimmy's like, you want to hear the demos or the acetate of my new album with my new band? And he's like, yeah, sure. Puts it on. Jeff's really digging it. And then You Shook Me comes on. And as great as the Jeff Beck version of You Shook Me is, Led Zeppelin ups the ante. And Jeff Beck's reduced to tears. He's like, Jimmy, how could you do this to me? And Jimmy Page to this day has insisted, I didn't know it was that the Jeff Beck group had done it. I, I didn't know. And, and that's kind of yeah. believable, but John Paul Jones knew because he played on both versions. Yeah. Peter Grant knew because uh, he'd been yeah. involved in the production of both albums. So um, some incredible thoughts. I mean, you also have to wonder why you know, they were really good friends. Why didn't Jimmy play his really good friend's new album? Yeah, I'm sure he had a copy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or or did, did he leave the room every time you shook me came on because the kettle was boiling or someone was at the door and he just never got to hear that one song? It just, that always struck me as a really weak excuse. 
Absolutely. And I couldn't find the song that you were talking about, but let's hear Rock My Plum Soul and hear that call call and response. And then we'll go back and finish talking about uh, Jeff Beck, Led Zeppelin, and the collapse of the Jeff Beck group. Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart doing Rock My Plimsoll, which perfects this call and response thing that's a huge hit with American audiences and it's going to go on to be a staple of the Led Zeppelin live act. And yeah, I mean, I've known musicians and, and knowing how they listen to music, they tend to be obsessive and get into what they're into and ignore things that people hand them to them. So I can sort of believe Jimmy Page was off in whatever you know musical world he was into, but it's just really hard uh, <laughs> to buy that story. <laughs> They, they weren't friends, I would say, fine. But yeah. the fact that they were good friends, and you know, Jeff certainly wanted to hear Jimmy's new album, so did Jimmy never want to hear Jeff's? How odd. Yes. <laughs> it, 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 it begs a question. And, and, you know, when you listen to Truth, and if all you know about the group is that album, and you know about its future influence, and you listen to it, and, and it's this really well sequenced, you know, there's not a strong songwriter in the group The the couple of originals are, are blatant steals from blues artists, you know, buddy guy and um, yeah. some others uh, should probably have filed suit um, at various points. And you've got a song by Tim Rose and morning dew and, and you've got Rod Stewart's kind of odd cover of old man river, but I it, <laughs> and at the time, that was a big hit. I mean, that was they were talking about releasing the single. That was the song that FM radio was playing. And it also, you know, Rod Stewart doing Paul Robeson and doing a show tune, although it's it's from the, the musical Showboat, which is kind of like the Wagner of, of Broadway musicals it's, or the Beethoven. I mean, it's it's where the form is perfected and invented and um you know, was sung by Paul Robeson, who is one of Rod Stewart's early idols. Al Jolson was another one of Stewart's early idols yeah. before he became a D- David Ruffin acolyte. But it, it it lets Rod do this near operatic style of singing, and it works. And it, it it it's just a great mix. You would never know that this is a group that is Nicky Hopkins, who is a member of briefly in '68 said, you know, it wasn't really like a band. It was just Jeff and Rod and Woody if he was around and whatever drummer they hadn't pissed off lately. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know, and, and and reading about this, everybody's doing side projects all through this this period. You know, Jeff Beck's doing sessions. Ronnie Wood gets involved in a whole nother band for a period uh, with the creation and, and records on several singles. Uh, Rod Stewart records some singles with a solo single, uh, Misunderstood on the Impact label, and 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 records with Peter Green again. How are they managing to? I mean, what was the deal that they were so loosely organized? I think you know Jeff wasn't paying attention. Management was effectively non-existent as a watchful force. And 
again, I mean, you look at the late 60s, a lot of musicians were going off and just doing things with their mates, um, you know, making their own odd little records. Rod had management that obviously saw a future in him. Um, yeah, someone said, you want to make, yeah, Andrew Oldham would go up to uh, Rod and say, yeah, do you want to make a single for my label? And Rod would be, well, I'm not doing anything. So, yes. And there was nothing in the contract to stop him. So I think there was just that degree, yeah, it was opportunism for all of them to go off and do other things, which is good. It, yeah, in a way, it keeps a band healthy. They're not feeling tied to one another 24 hours a day. Um, but I did just want to go back and say, you know, you're talking about Old Man River and talking about Rod's performance. Um, I think the, it's the arrangement that makes that performance as incredible as it is. You know, the rolling timpani and, you know, the Keith howling Moon. guitar. Yeah, Keith Moon on timpani there. And, and yeah, yeah, go ahead. And it's just such an... It's an old show tune, but they turn it into something else with the way they play it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a power ballad. I mean, it's a modern. It's the model for Aerosmith's "Dream On" and Guns N' Roses, and you know, so many groups um, would go on to explore. You know, Jeff Beck calls "Truth" a blueprint, and it absolutely is. It's the blueprint for a perfect hard rock heavy metal album of the '70s, '80s, and '90s, uh, right there in 1968. And then yeah, we move back to Rod's solo single, a little misunderstood, great song, but it wasn't Jeff Beck group material. No. Yeah, it was uh, you know Sweet and Mike Mike Darbo wrote it, I think. Yeah, the same guy who wrote uh, um, Handbags yeah. and Glad Rags. Yeah. Um, so it was yeah, you know, it was a great little pop single. Yeah, he did some stuff with um, he did some stuff with P.P. Arnold as well at the time. I think. Um, but, yeah, know, that's the just, session yeah. when Mick Jagger and he got in a fight and they never uh, cut anything. Yeah. <laughs> Rod Stewart, <laughs> Mick Jagger trying to produce Rod Stewart failed from the get-go. <laughs> <laughs> I think they also knew that the, uh, the Beck group, yeah, and possibly because of management, possibly because Jeff you know, wasn't, 100% engaged with it. I think everybody knew it wasn't going to last. And when you throw in the discontent about the traveling arrangements, watching Jeff speed off in his limo while they pile into the van with the roadies um, and end up in a, a very cheap motel on the poor side of town, you could, I think they all knew it was falling apart and started just looking towards whatever future they could grab. I mean, Ronnie Wood was sacked a few times from the band and then always called back because nobody was as good as him. So by the end, which was after another American tour, the group was falling apart, but, you know, I think Nicky Hopkins was the first to leave. Yeah, he... he... Um, other than the purge, when they when they fired Mickey Waller and Ron Wood at one time, which Nicky Hopkins suggested, that was that was. Yeah. A, <laughs> and Beck hated Hopkins to Hopkins' dying day. They'd been friends before that. Obviously, they admired each other's musicality, 
And in a lot of ways, Hopkins was a brilliant addition. I mean, here's a virtuoso who can go toe to toe with Jeff Beck, which is unheard of. And he's playing acoustic piano, which is a very unique sound for that period. It's very different from, say, what John Lord is doing on Hammond organ for Deep Purple or what John Paul Jones is doing on keyboards for Led Zeppelin around the same time. It's a it's a it's a lighter approach. And and, you know, he plays on a couple tracks on Truth. He's on um uh, Beck's Bolero, obviously. And then he's all over the second album, Beckola, Cosa Nostra Beckola, which just doesn't work as well. And, and yeah. you know, they were rushed into the studio to do that because they needed product for American tour. They start out doing some great. Elvis covers, which you've slagged, but I love their version of All Shook Up and Jailhouse Rock. <laughs> and it... <laughs> I do. I, I, I find something about the tone of that album and, and with Tony Newman on drums, it's a little heavier. Mickey Waller was the king of the blues shuffle. Um, and so Truth has this kind of San Francisco psychedelic quality because of those blues shuffles and the wah-wah pedal. And yeah. um, um, Bacola does not. Bacola is very much a, a, a sort of half-assed reaction, sort of a panicked reaction to Led Zeppelin's first album. And let's hear a yeah. little bit of Jailhouse Rock. This is this is the solo uh, uh, from Jeff Beck on Jailhouse Rock, which is absolutely a, a preview of things that Eddie Van Halen and Randy Rhodes and others are going to be doing in 15 years later. This is Jeff Beck Group doing Jailhouse Rock. That was Jeff Beck's solo from Jailhouse Rock, and I just had to pick a guitar feature for for this. I mean, you know, you can't do a Jeff Beck show and not not wallow in his guitar yep. playing a little bit. Um, but yeah, and and the thing is, if they had stuck to their guns and done a whole album of rock and roll covers, that would have been very much in the zeitgeist of 1969. I mean, Elvis had done his his Christmas comeback special. You know, Shauna Na is going to have a big show at Woodstock. You know, if they'd thrown in. Yeah, you know, yeah, summertime blues, blue cheers doing that too. Um, But they instead they want to get some publishing, so they do some originals that were basically written. Good. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're not really good songs, but there's a heavy sound on them. Um, Well, when you think Rod, Rod was recording um, "Gold Raincoat Will Never Let You Down" by this point. And he and Ronnie were hanging out with Ronnie's brother, Art, in a new band called Quiet Melon. So, in fact, the Beck Group album was almost, it feels like an afterthought. Almost. Very much so. And and, and Ronnie... Rod put, Go ahead. Rod put everything... Rod put everything into Raincoat. I mean, that was just an amazing album. And it almost came out of nowhere when you because it came out six months after the Beck album. I think it was six months. And you can't you can't just couldn't see it coming. You know, there here he is singing Rod Stewart and all of a sudden he's made this sort of wonderful, folky, rocky album with exquisite musicianship, no showboating except for him. Yeah. And they also had Quiet Melon, which would sort of ultimately morph into, you know, a kind of faces. 
yeah, the, kicking everybody. Yeah, <laughs> everybody else leaving. But the end for the band was, you know, it was ironically just before Woodstock, which um, I think I think they've been invited to play Woodstock. Yes, they they had, and, and Jeff Beck yeah. decided against it. Yeah, uh, but he didn't have a band anyway by this point. Yeah, they 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 totally fallen apart. He was he was already talking to uh, Bogart in a piece, Carmen a piece, and Tim Bogart yeah. from from Vanilla Fudge. And Vanilla Fudge is kind of forgotten now. But in 1967, their version of "You Keep Me Hanging On" by the Supremes really upped the stakes and the. <laughs> We talk about this last time. Yes, when we talked about Holland, Dozer Holland, and and yeah. you know, so there's this very heavy force for a while, and and Beck is enamored of the idea of playing with that rhythm section, yeah. and he wants to bring Rod Stewart along with him, and that's when Rod Stewart finally says, "I'm done with you." Yeah, and I mean, one one of the things that Beck seemed to dislike about Woodstock was the fact it was being filmed. And it's strange, but he seems to have a very, or he had, an odd relationship with cameras. Um, now, in 73, he did uh, Bowie's, at the time, farewell gig, uh, Hammersmith Odeon. Came out as a special guest. They did a fantastic version of Gene Genie with Beck throwing like old riffs into it. Over under sideways downturns up in it. Um it was basically Bowie's gift to Mick Ronson, who was a huge, huge Beck fan. But it was absolutely really, really good. And then a few years later, Bowie's like, he wants to put out the film of it. And Beck won't let him use his, uh, his sequence. Do you know why? It didn't like his outfit is the claim, he didn't right? Like his, he didn't like his trousers. <laughs> And it's it was so funny. I did I interviewed him um, around you know, early nineties, and then I, I was doing a Bowie piece, and I mentioned that you know that's not in film because he didn't like his trousers. So this is for goldmine, I think. I got deluged by hate mail from people saying that's not the reason. Jeff would never say something like that. Jeff loves his trousers, and they virtually turned. They virtually turned Jeff Beck into, you know, that Donovan song, um, I love my shirt, I love my wardrobe, yes. my shoes are really happy. It's on, funnily enough, it's on the album that has his uh, collaboration with the Jeff Beck group on it. Um, but it, they turned Jeff Beck into the embodiment of this Donovan song. And um, I asked Beck again, like 20 years later, if it was true. And he said, yes, I didn't <laughs> like my trousers, I couldn't use it. <laughs> I think it's the best reason ever. Yeah, and that, and that's such a huge film. I mean, it's the last Ziggy Stardust concert with the original Spiders from Mars, and and yeah. you know, it's the Anna Baker shot it. Um, everyone looks good. The audience is great. I mean, it showed up on the ABC TV special, which um, you know circulates in those places where things like that circulate. Um, really bad quality, but his trousers really don't look that bad. They're sort of standard 1973 flares. Yeah, nobody's going to look at that when you're seeing David Bowie in a blouse next to him. I mean, it's... No. You know. And, yeah, Mick Ross dressed up as a Christmas tree and the rest of the band, 
yeah, no one was even going to look at Beck's trousers, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and, 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 and you get that sort of feeling with the decision not to play at Woodstock, but his argument was, I knew that the band was really falling apart at that point, yeah. and that I was afraid of being totally embarrassed. And that's the thing about the Jeff Beck group. Even you know at, at their best moments, like when they have the triumph at the Fillmore East, they immediately then have some debacles at the I think it's at the Boston Tea Party right afterwards. It's a very mercurial band. Jeff Beck was always known for that. His performances were always uneven with the Yardbirds. The the yeah. pressure of having to compete with Jimmy Page every night because Jimmy Page is a machine and is always on, and Jeff Beck has to have that inspiration. And so and the band was the same way. Like Peter Grant said, I'd never seen a band that if they had a row before the show, that's when they would play the best. You know, it's when they were all really hating each other that they were on fire. And that's just not sustainable. And so I could see where he didn't want to go and have a debacle at Woodstock. And like you mentioned, they also record almost a full album with Donovan. And they're on multiple sessions with Frank Zappa's GTOs, the girls together outrageously, the groupie thing. And it, it's you know, it's it's just sort of baffling from somebody who's studied popular music and, you know, like so much talent, so much opportunity uh, was missed, you know, and, and um, it's, it's, you know, like, like but Jeff they, Beck, Tom, go ahead. They made, they made that one album, which made it all worthwhile. Yes. Because, I mean, I think Truth, Truth is one of the, the perfect albums. There's really nothing on there that I would change. Apart from the scratch in my copy of Green Sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a scratch at the beginning of, of Shapes of Things, but it, it, that, that similarly vexes me. It, but yeah, it's it's a perfect album. It's amazing that it it's just one of those things that threaded the needle. It was only because the Yardbirds had broken up and that was Mickey Mouse act that toured America and, and did albums. And so he had an opening for a band to tour America and do albums. And so he, yeah. that's the only reason he let Jeff Beck do it. And, you know, uh, it all came together. Unlike the second album where Jeff Beck is like, Oh, if we'd only spent two or three weeks thinking about material for that album, you know, you just want to smack him in the head. Like you had plenty of time <laughs> to do that. Well, they, they had the rest of the set that they'd never recorded. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and um, it you had know, plenty of material, but yeah, you know, it's like you said, they wanted to get some publishing. So yep. they give us things like ice pudding and plinth, and yeah, I guess yeah. if it had been those albums that had come out under a stupid name, like you know, the Purple Bullfrog, um, and it had just been you know, top musicians jamming together, it would probably be a lot more legendary than it is yeah i mean it was sort of disowned by them they never played any of the material live except for very different versions of rice pudding the instrumental um that on the album has this monstrous opening riff but in the live versions it's just kind of a random blues jam um yeah but yeah it's it's like if they i think also if they had blown it up into a double album and done some of the motown covers some of the curtis mayfield covers because that was a big part of the band that they never really captured. That's the one thing. Like if if yeah. I was going to change truth in any way, I would add their version of the Temptations. I, I know I'm losing you because um, mm. it's just so ferocious. Yeah. Um, I would add it. I would yeah. Add it on. Yeah, just it's as an addition. 
Oh, I and must say, if you, if you ever find a, the mono truth, um, it's different. Um, it's yeah. different and might be better. I will, I will check that out, check that out. And I guess we should finish the rest of the story. Um, you know, the, the, the Rod Stewart and Ron Wood go on to form the faces and Rod has this weird parallel solo career at the same time. He's touring with the faces, but he's putting out his solo albums. Um, and then when that falls apart, there's this odd moment when Jeff Beck, who has a car wreck right after the group breaks up. So he can't put together his, his dream band with Bogart and a piece finally puts that together like three years later. And it it's woefully mistimed. But there's yeah. a moment when both Jeff Beck and Ronnie Wood are auditioning for the same gig. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, there was this band called the Rolling Stones, who you may remember. Uh, <laughs> they, needed, they needed a new guitarist. So they seem to have just held open rehearsals uh, so at the studio in Munich. Um, Wayne Perkins was there. Rory Gallagher was invited. Uh, Mick Ronson was in the frame for a time. It's like they looked at every guitarist there was. Um, Beck, the legend is that they actually offered the gig to Beck and he said, uh, call me when you have a rhythm section. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know how true this is. I'm sure it is just one of those terrible, terrible rumors that has sprung up. But it's really funny, and you could imagine Jeff Beck saying it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the end, Ronnie Ronnie got the job and uh, has been there forever. Yes, was the perfect fit for the band, and and yeah, Jeff Beck. I, I, I find it hard to believe that Ronnie's been in that band for you know thirty five years now. Yet when you think of Rolling Stones guitarist, it's always uh, Brian Jones and Mick Taylor. Yep. Yep. Uh, 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 although Ronnie was on some girls and, 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 uh, yeah. tat, you know, so, you know, he's on at least one and tattoo you has a lot to claim for it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the um, least emotion, emotional rescue is actually my favorite stones. I've had a revisionist period on that song at least, but as a kid, I remember just hating emotional rescue, but yeah, so it's just, <laughs> Highly ironic that Beck, the great lead guitarist, gets beat out for an audition for the biggest band in the world by his bass player. His bass player, I can't imagine him having lasted. No, no. It would have been an album or two tops. And yeah, it would have got uh, distracted by something shiny elsewhere or something not shiny, actually. Yeah, and I'll form another band with other people from Vanilla Fudge. (laughs) Quite possibly. But he he did find his his Blow by Blow album produced by George Martin was a a platinum seller, massive hit, you know, um, not necessarily my cup of tea, but, um, you know, was in that jazz rock zeitgeist of the mid-70s and... you know, very lucrative and successful and a good fit for him. I mean, he fundamentally, if he couldn't be with Rod Stewart, didn't want to work with a different singer. And, and, um, you know, it's funny, you've got some quotes in the book, you know, Rod Stewart saying, I've said so many terrible things about Beck. And the funny thing is they're all true. And then, you know, you get 
<laughs> Jeff Beck saying, you know, once you've had Rod Stewart, you can never have anybody else. It's, and it's not that one-sided. I mean, Jeff Beck in another place is, we've had a love-hate relationship. He loves me, I hate him. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> so, yeah, with that kind of chemistry, it's it's volatile by definition. But, you know, like you said, they had their moment. They, they recorded this one album that's absolutely a signpost for the future of rock and roll. And, um, we just got to thank him and appreciate the music. And Dave Thompson, thank you for coming on. The book is Truth, Rod Stewart, Ron Wood, and the Jeff Beck Group. And I hope to have you back again soon. Yeah, thank you very much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long for the second installment of their David Ritz book club covering Marvin Gaye's Divided Soul. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. Truth, Rod Stewart, Ron Wood, and the Jeff Beck Group is published by Cherry Red Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.